Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Newfoundland and Labrador Senator David Wells insists invoking the Emergencies Act was clear government overreach. Burnaby's Albert Labs has just received a Health Canada license to produce medicinal psilocybin. Its CEO, Dr. Mike Raymond, talks about how this approach is already working. And Blaine-based immigration lawyer Len Saunders walks us through what you've been told will happen versus what actually will happen when you decide to drive into the USA. So, let's get started. Let me just quote a couple of lines from an an article written by our next guest. All levels of government have tools and laws available to them to keep peace, order, and good government. None were used effectively in the extended trucker occupation in front of Parliament Hill. The staggering incompetence of local authorities and the unwillingness of the municipal, provincial, and federal governments to act as the protesters dug in on Wellington Street does not justify the authoritarian and clumsy tactics the Prime Minister ultimately used. The use of the Emergencies Act in this instance was not only unnecessary, but was wrong in law and in substance. The article, entitled Emergencies Act, was a clear overreach. It was written by Newfoundland Senator David Wells, and we are delighted this morning on the West Coast to stretch as far across Canada as we possibly can technically, four and a half time zones away in the rustic fishing village of English Harbor, Newfoundland. We are joined on the line by Senator David Wells. Senator, good morning and thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning, Sterling. It's great to have you with us, David. Let's talk a little bit about overreach. Uh, the The analysis from here is uh, they were given a, a week's notice before we even left. People left Western Canada. The government and all the authorities were notified they were coming. Uh, and on the way, uh, their coverage of the arrival was, was extensive. There was not one issue uh, in terms of surprise here. It was the uh, lack of preparation on the part of Ottawa and all who lived there that that created the the uh, conditions under which the Emergencies Act was ultimately uh, declared. But Senator Wells, uh, the observation has been the elites who demonized the truckers and called them names even before they left their driveways were not in the least bit interested in speaking to them or finding out what was going on. And so as a result, put them on ignore and essentially deserved what they got. And when it finally happened, they panicked. What's your take? Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, You know, we had the prime minister. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. This was the, this was the, the, Something everyone watched on the news every day that started to gather in British Columbia and gathered more steam and across the prairies and then pick up steam in the east. And, you know, we all knew weeks ahead of time uh, when this was going to arrive in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Um, so so none of this was a surprise. Right. Uh, we had the and, and, you know, we had once once they were there and uh, and and had set up their protest and their voice was being heard. We had the prime minister calling them a fringe minority. Many of them are misogynists and racist, made reference to Nazis and refused to even speak to them other than through uh, other than through the uh, 
not directly to them, but of them through, you know, his releases and, uh, and, and, and interviews. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in fact, in many ways, I think he was baiting them, uh, these protesters, who I think, uh, right or wrong on their methodology, uh, but they had a legitimate beef. So uh, as far as the legitimacy of their beef goes, I don't think there was anyone that was going to argue with the, the anger and the frustration involved. The, the manifestation of that frustration and anger bothered some people, particularly the residents of bucolic Little Ottawa, which prides itself as being a G7 world capital until something G7 world capital-ish happens to it. And then all of a sudden, it's a, some kind of small backwater town. You can't have it both ways. Can you? You know what? You're absolutely right. My my office in in uh, on Parliament Hill looks out over over the over the lawn of Parliament Hill, uh, and 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 consequently looks out over Wellington Street as well, where this protest uh, was going on. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting in my office, and I would hear the horns, and and I would hear the music, and and I would hear the you know the people singing, and 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 I'd hear the speeches. Uh, was it disruptive? Without a doubt, it was disruptive. Sure. Uh, was it? Did it? Did I feel at any time in danger? Absolutely not. I would park uh, just beyond where the protest was, and I would walk through the through that area, and I would speak to the people as I made my way to my, made my way to my office and back to my car at the end of the day. Uh, at no point did I feel threatened. Right. It wasn't un, wasn't an unruly mob. They just they just set up shop on Wellington, hoping to be heard. And they represented a lot of voices in Canada. Senator Wells, uh, you, you've described it accurately in terms of the point of origin of this uh, truckers' uh, freedom convoy, call it whatever you will. It was from Western Canada, began here in British Columbia, and as you mentioned, picked up steam and people heading east. Why was there not a similar convoy out of Eastern Canada, your part of the world, Atlantic Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador? We didn't hear or see of any representation from that part of the country at all. Why? Uh, well, perhaps you didn't hear about representation, but there there was a smaller convoy that came east. And in fact, there were some Newfoundlanders uh, and uh, Labradorians and others from Atlantic Canada. You're right. It wasn't. It, well, the, 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 the germ of the protest came from the West and that's where it started. Sure. Built up steam. Uh, but but there were there were um, there were I'll call them freedom convoy protesters that came from the east as well. But you're absolutely right. The overwhelming uh, majority appeared to be from from Western Canada. But you know what? This is a pan. This was a pan Canadian problem. Sure. And the and and the and the Emergencies Act when it was invoked uh, affected every Canadian. It wasn't just the suspension of civil liberties, civil liberties from the protesters. It was the suspension of civil liberties of civil liberties of every Canadian. Mm -hmm. Uh, Senator Wells, uh, the inquiry that is currently sort of underway uh, regarding the uh, the the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And we're hearing from various police agencies, for example, that none of them requested this implementation. And they handled uh, border issues at Coots and down in Windsor without the Emergencies Act being invoked. Uh, And yet uh, and there was something about arson in an apartment building Toronto that turned out to be a red herring. Uh, How confident, if at all, are you, Senator Wells, in the investigation process surrounding this inquiry and the eventual outcome? Because it's shaping up to be a whitewash, if you don't mind my saying, from this particular perspective. 
you know what? I don't disagree with you. So there are just to be clear, there are two there are two two inquiries set up. One is a parliamentary committee made up of uh, members of the House of Commons and members of the Senate. So they will they will they will do a deep dive into this, and that's ongoing. There's another uh, study going on, which is truly an inquiry, uh, but that is it's headed by uh, someone close to the Liberal Party, not to not to cast aspersions on their on their ability to conduct such a such a such an inquiry but also in, in those terms of reference sterling for that actual inquiry not the parliamentary committee it's it, the question is and it's very specific what led to the invocation yeah of of right as opposed to you know was this right was this correct was there a threat to canada's sovereignty security or territorial integrity which is what the act says yes uh, it also says you know uh, seriously endangers the li- lives health or safety of Canadians, and it of, and is of such proportions or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with. Of course, no, neither of those neither of those happen. Police forces uh, are partner with other police forces every day in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the question of traffic or obstruction or illegal assembly, there are laws in place and they're dealt with every day. So, so using this type of hammer and you know to 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 to, to squash. A peaceful, what started out as peaceful, and in fact, by and large, it was peaceful. Uh, uh, protest was, you know, the an, an overreach uh, that I've never seen before. And you know what? I see in my in my ten years in the Senate, I've seen hundreds of protests, hundreds, sure, uh, on Parliament Hill. And while this one was loud and it was noisy and it was disruptive, uh, did it require the invocation of the Emergencies Act? No. All right. Interesting column and uh, very good of you to take some time out of your long weekend, Senator Wells, to spend a little time on the other side of the country talking about something that affects us all. We do appreciate your time and we do wish you enjoy the rest of your long weekend. You're welcome, Sterling. Thanks so much. A Burnaby-based lab has been granted a healthcare license, Health Canada license for psilocybin, better known as magic mushrooms, and other psychoactive controlled substances. Albert Labs is the name of the company, and they've been granted permission for legal possession, production, assembly, sale, and delivery of the substance. The date of the new Health Canada license? Just a couple of weeks ago, May 5th this year. It's a pleasure to welcome the CEO of Albert Labs, Dr. Michael Raymond, to our program to learn more about this interesting development. Dr. Raymond, good morning, sir. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Dr. Mike. It's good to have you with us. Tell us a little bit first about the, 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 this whole magic mushroom business and psilocybin production. Connect the dots, if you can, for us, please. Sure. Look, I know I'm going to sound like a lawyer right at the start, but I do have to inform listeners that this is a controlled substance. And so what I'm going to talk about this morning is strictly for educational and informative purposes. I am not recommending, nor is our company recommending, therapeutic use. Fair enough. Okay. And although you call me doctor, I'm a chemical engineer, not a physician. So I use doctor to talk to my bank manager, (laughs) but I can't write prescriptions. So now we've we've had conversations with some other advocates of psilocybin as a, a psychotherapeutic uh, device, and it's uh, it is it is being proven not only here in Canada but around the world to be very effective. And your company is participating in some work right now in the UK, Doctor Raymond. Tell us more about that because these dots do get connected quickly. Yeah, this is absolutely true. 
look, psilocybin along with other psychedelics were the sort of scourge of the 60s and 70s, and it was really why the Controlled Substance Act of 1970 was brought in. So they're illegal. And so research, which has started back in the 30s and 40s and showed they had potential immense value as mental health treatments for disorders like anxiety and depression mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, these were all made illegal and research basically slowed to a trickle to a stop. And it wasn't until a few years ago that uh, people started taking it seriously. But it's not the big drug companies. And we just heard on your 7 o'clock news how now there's another oil, opioid. Now, this one wasn't a big pharma opioid, but big pharma produced some opioids. They turned out to have disastrous consequences. And that's possibly speculated as one of the reasons why big pharma has tended to avoid mental health and disorders and focus on, you know, drugs for other parts of the body. Sure. So it's left to companies like Albert Labs to do this work. And so, uh, again, the use, uh, uh, the application of psilocybin as a psycho, as a, a, th- a therapeutic device in psychological uh, applications. And you're talking specifically now in the UK about how psilocybin is being used to treat people who are, who are suffering from cancer and dealing with enormous depression as a result of that. And it's perfectly understandable why the depression would occur. How effective is psilocybin being as a remedy? in this circumstance so we're just about to start our clinical trial and that was why the health canada license was important because we can now as you mentioned in the introduction transport as well as possess and produce uh, some of these psychoactive substances so the reason that's so important as you just mentioned it's devastating when somebody is diagnosed with cancer sure Uh, people are just terrified Anxiety and depression would be a mild way to put it. Oh, yeah. And so there is excellent evidence, excellent evidence that one single dose, 25 milligrams of psilocybin administered along with, and this is really important, along with associated psychotherapy, uh, about a couple of days, half a day before, a day afterwards, that kind of thing. But the one 25 milligram capsule can bring people off anxiety and depression can cure that anxiety and depression for six months and in some cases permanently. Wow. Now, it doesn't work for everybody, but probably 70% of people who undergo these treatments appear to be anxiety-free. And we're working primarily with... Uh, now, I want to emphasize to listeners that we haven't started our clinical trial yet, but we, uh, we'll start it this fall And this is really one of the last pieces that needed to fall in place so that we can have our clinical trial underway this fall and the results will come so quickly that we expect to have an approved prescription drug by Q1, Q2 of 22. If we do that, that would be, uh, sorry, of 23. We're already in 22. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... Uh, that'll be quite remarkable because we're using what's called a fast track system. And that's why we're in the UK. This does not mean there's any greater risk. It will be exactly the same approval as given for any other prescription drug, the same way the FDA does in the US or Health Canada does in Canada. The UK has this system. And in fact, those drugs can then be approved by other authorities with the same data the reason for this is there's so much initial information known now, today, that we don't have to go through the usual phase one, phase two, 
called the traditional randomized clinical trial. Right. Uh, Dr. Raymond, how long has this process of obtaining a Health Canada license for psilocybin taken you? Uh, about six, seven months or so. Hmm. Um, it requires a fair amount of paperwork and checking because I will see things like security, um, backgrounds on the people who are working at the facility and so on. They're important. I mean, these drugs in, used in a non-professional way uh, can cause all sorts of problems. Yes. And we would never recommend, and, and we have no business and never want any part of recreational business whatsoever. Sure. People do use them recreationally. You know, we cannot advocate that in any possible way. But under the care of a physician, a psychiatrist, psychologist, these do work. There's every piece of evidence to suggest they work. And since anxiety, depression, other mental disorders cause families to be torn apart, mm -hmm. lives to be wrecked, and an estimated $3 trillion a year in economic losses. Now, that's a very blunt number in terms of dollars and cents when we're talking about people's lives being wrecked. But just loss of productivity, sure. people just are dozing on the job, they don't feel well, they're unfocused, all these things cost the world $3 trillion a year. Well, we could do a lot with that $3 trillion. <laughs> We certainly could. Uh, Dr. Raymond, almost out of time, sir, but I need to ask you one final question, and that deals with the medical community at large. You have a new product licensed now by Health Canada. You're beginning to conduct uh, clinical trials in the United Kingdom later this year. What sort of appetite do you suspect there is in the general medical community for this additional therapeutic uh, remedy being available to them? Is, are, are, do you sense even a degree of awareness that there should be with regards to this product? That's a great question because one of the biggest uh, things that's held uh, psychedelics back from being mainstream medicines has been this image of psychedelics as being dangerous, nasty, illegal drugs, and particularly associated with irresponsible rock and roll artists from no, the sure. 70s. Yep. And, you know, so much, so much for that. The point is that actually doctors who are now looking at this and see the results are absolutely stunned how effective it is. And because they have nothing else in their, in their arsenal apart from drugs that were invented 25 years ago and are not good to take on a long-term basis. Mm -hmm. Listeners may have heard of a drug called SSRIs or benzodiazepines, you know, tranquilizers, these kinds of things. They're about the only thing in a doctor's arsenal right now to deal with anxiety and depression. And they're not very effective and they're not good to take for any period of time because they are addictive. And here's something your listeners will find fascinating psilocybin has been shown to be non-addictive. So concerns about that should be put aside. Physicians are jumping on board because particularly oncologists, we're focused on cancer-related sure, yeah. depression and, and anxiety. Physicians have no tools. Often the, uh, the typical antidepressives and anti-anxiety compounds that are used today are contraindicated for their treatment with cancer and their anxiety also causes their immune system to degrade somewhat or not be as effective so 
these poor people who are suffering cancer and so terrified by it don't have even the strongest immune system to fight it off. And physicians don't have drugs to fight, fight, their anxiety, fight the patient's anxiety. So they absolutely welcome the idea of a new compounds, new substances, new approaches to solving the problem of anxiety and cancer-related displacement. And indeed, it's, it's, it's great that, this, uh, that one of the new options is going to be produced right here in Burnaby, British Columbia, by your company, Dr. Michael Raymond Albert Labs. Congratulations on the arduous process of obtaining that license. We wish you considerable success going forward, sir, and we are grateful for your time on a holiday weekend. Thanks. It's a pleasure to meet you, Dr. Mike. Thank you. And yes, it's the long weekend. And yes, many Canadians, for the very first time in well over two years, have decided, well, what the heck? Let's let's head across the line and see what happens. So what to expect uh, when you cross the line? Uh, we're, we're delighted to welcome Len Sanders to the program. Mr. Sanders is an immigration lawyer, uh, well known to CKNW listeners, uh, who joins us this morning from his office in Blaine, Washington. Len, good morning. Thanks for getting up early to be with us today. Sure. How are you, Sterling? I'm very well, thank you. As uh, many people heading south uh, across the border for the first time in a long time, Len, what's the most important thing they should know this morning? What sort of documentation should they have at their fingertips to be ready to present when they cross and when it's their turn at the border kiosk? Well, obviously, their Canadian passport or whatever their status is in Canada and their visa to the U.S., But what the American officers don't seem to be asking for is proof of vaccination, even though most Canadians uh, believe that that is the policy on entering the U.S. right now at land ports of entry. So it's, it's interesting. It is. And uh, I'm just going to invite our, our uh, technical producer, Phil Figueroa, to join us uh, for a moment or two, Lynn, because uh, Phil made the arrangements for you to join us a few days ago. And Phil, you conducted a rather unscientific but spontaneous survey uh, on social media to find out what you just wanted to know how many people in your circle of uh, connections know about the rules for crossing the border. And what did you find out? Yeah, thanks again for joining us, Len. And yeah, th- th- that's exactly what I did. I went to Twitter, I went to Instagram, and I just posted out there have you traveled via the land border recently uh and what proof of documentation or what did you have to show at the border when you went down right every single person except for one i had about 40 responses they all said the same thing was asked for my passport was asked where i'm going asked when i'm coming back and that's pretty much it not a single mention of vaccination status not a single mention of vaccination passports none of that kind of stuff so that's kind of why i wanted to to do the segment was just to kind of see what the what the people down south are get are they hearing the same thing about canadians coming down and have they been asked to show proof of vaccination because going down south you actually need to show it supposedly right but that's not the case. So, Len, uh, the the impression is, at least the Canadians and Phil sort of backing it up big time, is that we're going to be asked all of these questions and we're going to be expected to show these documents. And yet at the same time, and my son lives about five minutes drive from the truck crossing and he pops over for gas and whatnot all the time. And he uh, echoed what Phil was just saying. He's, he hasn't been asked for his vaccine status yet. And he goes over fairly regularly. So what's up with that? Well, I think what's up, and it's interesting because it's totally different at the airports, and I'll kind of explain that later about flying, but at the land ports of entry, 
The only real reason I can, you know, guess is that these American officers don't consider themselves the vaccination police, right? Ah. They consider themselves law enforcement. They're looking for drug traffickers and criminals and, you know, people who've broken immigration laws in the past. And they're not going to waste their time asking. It's interesting. If you call the land ports of entry and ask, they will tell you point blank that you have to have proof of vaccination. Sure. So they'll tell you that publicly. But, you know, I know a lot of these officers. They're my neighbors in Blaine. You know, our kids are on the same baseball and soccer team. They okay. chat about it. And they've been told point blank by their supervisors, don't ask. I've even had clients who rolled up to the land border crossings, shown the officer their vaccination cards, and the officer says, put that away. We don't care. It's, it's bizarre when publicly... You know, the American government is telling Canadians you have to show proof of vaccination, but they're not asking. So does this kind of open the door then, Len, do you think for some Canadians, those few Canadians who are up into the high 80s, low 90s in terms of uh, population vaccination overall, but for those people who who remain unvaccinated, uh, they can probably slip across the line and uh, slide down to a baseball game in the States without ever being asked about their status by the sounds of things. Oh, absolutely. And I know a lot of people who've done that. The problem, Sterling is going back to Canada. Uh What do people do? And I think that's one of the reasons why they really don't ask, is they know that most people who aren't vaccinated aren't going to come down because of the issue going back to Canada, because the Canadian officers will ask. And if you're not vaccinated, you know, if they follow their policy, you're going to do the quarantine and all that. And so that's what a lot of people are scared about is going back to Canada. And there's another uh, twist to the, to the plot in terms of Canadian travelers, Lynn, and I know you're an American and I know you're south of the line, however many feet, but still, there's this whole business of the Arrive Can app. Uh, you know, when if a Canadian leaves the country uh, and goes somewhere, uh, that uh, is documented at the point of arrival, wherever somewhere else may be, and when you return to Canada, you present your passport and they know you're back home. So this isn't another level or or layer of surveillance added by the government. Uh, do the American authorities ask about arrive can at all ever? No. And I've been up twice. So I don't know if you know, but I'm Canadian too. I'm born in British Columbia. I'm now a dual citizen. So when I drive back to Canada, I don't present my U.S. passport. I present my Canadian. So, and I've used the arrive Canada app. It's actually pretty simple. I've been up there twice since April 1st. Right. Um, just to kind of check out the crossing. Coming back, once again, the Americans really don't care. As long as you can show your passport or Nexus card or some kind of compliance document, I don't think they really care about, you know, your Arrive Canada app, what you're doing up in Canada, any of that. Interesting. So when you did come up uh, to Canada with a Canadian passport uh, and uh, you, you expected probably a, a little more serious, uh, stringent interrogation than you would have received as a Canadian going south, did that turn out to be the case? Did you get asked a whole lot more than certainly you, you would have been asked as a Canadian traveling down to America? Well, that's what I expected. I was asked really nothing. I showed my Nexus card. I'd uploaded my proof of vaccination and my Canadian passport into the app. I, I had my phone ready to show, you know, my Rive Canada app number and all that. Right. Scanned my Nexus card. They said, have a nice day. That was it. It was, 
it was almost back to normal. I was shocked how simple it was. How about simple. how about goods? Because um, uh, I, I can work out. I, I used to live in White Rock, and used to, as my son continues to do, used to pop across the line for dairy products and gas all the time. Back in the day, it was pretty easy. Where are you going, Blaine? How long are you going to be there? Fifteen minutes. See ya. That was the interrogation. It's a little different now, but I think it's surprising that, uh, especially heading south, the interrogation isn't too much different than it was back in the day. Now. No, it's, you know, I'm, I'm surprised how quickly it went back to normal once the, um, you know, everything changed around April the 1st when there was no, you know, vaccination, uh, COVID test requirement. It, you know, and this morning, first thing I did when I got to my office just after 7 was I checked the border lineups. It's an hour's, you know, wait coming south. That's so right. Lots of people are back to traveling. There's tons of Canadian cars now in Whatcom County, like everyone's picking up their packages and shopping at Costco and Trader Joe's. It honestly looks like everything's back to normal. Most people have figured out the app and are compliant. You know, a lot of people don't want to kind of disobey the app and all of these returning requirements to Canada because a lot of people like me have Nexus cards and they're concerned if you don't follow the rules, you'll have your Nexus card taken. Right. So, a lot of people have been very diligent in complying with whatever rules. Really, the only surprise in the last six months has been this kind of lack of enforcement of the policy of being vaccinated as a Canadian coming into the U.S. The airport's totally different. The airport, if you fly to the U.S., especially from Vancouver Airport, it's the actual airlines that monitor it. So yep. You won't get your ticket your boarding pass to go through security to even see an American officer. So it's interesting how, you know, at the land or at the airports, they're very stringent because it's the airline to monitor it. But driving, honestly, like it, it feels like pre COVID, like nothing's changed. Len Saunders is an immigration lawyer joining us from his office in Blaine, Washington this morning uh, to talk about those conversations and the rules about crossing the border. And uh, Len, we did open up the phone line, so let's go right to some calls here. And we're in South Surrey with Ken on the line. Ken, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. I, uh, I go down all the time, and uh, I got an access card vaccinated. Arrive Canada app, etc. Uh-huh. I go through. I go through Nexus. Basically, where are you going? Going to Blaine? What's the purpose? Going to buy some gas? How long are you going to be? Maybe half an hour. Have a good day. Right. Bang. Right. Coming back, uh, I fill out that Arrive Canada app, and when I get to the border, show my Nexus card. Pull up. Uh, he doesn't want to see the app on my phone because he's already got the information that I sent in. So basically, he says, "Yeah, I've got it now." What happens if, if a Canadian goes down, sails through, comes back, arrives at the Canada border, and doesn't have the Arrive Canada app? What happens in that case? Excellent question, Ken. Now, uh, Len is uh, an American lawyer, but he is a Canadian citizen and has traveled through the Canadian border recently. So what's the, what are the consequences if you don't have the Arrive Can app, Len? Well, so what I've been told by Canadian officers who I know and also people who've arrived who just they've been unable to figure out the app on their phone, the Canadian officers will actually fill out everything. If as long as you have proof of your vaccination, they'll take care of it and they'll say the next time you arrive, just make sure to be compliant. So I think you understand not everyone can navigate this app on their phone or if you don't have an iPhone. So 
the Canadian officers have been very, uh, very helpful, I've been told. Okay, so it's, it's, you don't get a scolding. I mean, first of all, you're home, you're Canadian, uh, and uh, so they have to deal with you on that level. And in some cases, uh, people just haven't bothered with the Arrive Can app, I'm sure. Well, and as a Canadian citizen, you can't be denied entry. Right. I know of people who've said, I'm refusing to do it, and they've just pretty much driven through. Now, some people, there's no consequences. Other people have told me, that they've been given a $5,000 fine, but most people are compliant. It's like myself, right? When I came up, I knew what the policies are, even though maybe they're not the law. Mm-hmm. And you follow the policies and make sure that you're compliant because you don't want to run into future problems. But I know there are people who don't want to do the app and don't participate. If you're an American citizen, you will be denied entry. So Americans who don't comply won't get in. But for Canadians, you know, you can't be denied entry. One other thing I should mention to you, too, because this has come up with a lot of people in Canada, right? Flying within Canada, I've been told you need to be vaccinated. It's the exact opposite in the U.S. You can fly anywhere in this country, and there's no requirement to be vaccinated. I've flown a lot over the last two years on work within the U.S. I've never been asked once for proof of vaccination boarding a flight within the U.S. Interesting. And it is exactly the opposite up here in Canada. As you mentioned earlier, you can't even get a boarding pass anywhere in Canada until you flash your vaccination status. Absolutely. And I've had clients who've had their green card interviews in Montreal. That's where they do green card interviews at the U.S. consulate in Montreal. And I've had a couple of clients who've driven all the way across Canada, five days there, five days back for their interview in Montreal because they're not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. Back to the phones. We're in Langley this time around. Rod, thanks for waiting, and good morning. Good morning to you both, gentlemen. Um, yeah, I was down, uh, took the Point Roberts crossing last week and uh, had my vaccination pass and my arrive can all filled out already and went down. They didn't ask uh, just for my passport, asked where we were going. And, and then when we came back, same thing. It was just we were just asked for our passports only. Um, so my question is, do they already have your Arrive Cam information when you fill it out? Or how does that, they seem to know that, you know, that that was already done. What do you know about that, Len? So going into the U.S., the Americans have no access to the Arrive Canada app information. But going into Canada, it's my understanding when you do the app, and you use your ID, your passport, your whatever proof of Canadian citizenship, when you, when you roll up and use that document, supposedly it's on their screen. Because I asked an officer I know on the Canadian side after my first entry, because I was, you know, expecting to show, you know, my app uh, confirmation number and all of that. Sure, yeah. I just showed my Nexus card, and they said, have a nice day. So it's been linked, and it, it, it's interesting. They've had two years to work this out. And obviously, they've worked out all the glitches. What's, what's interesting, too, is, like, how long will this actually remain a requirement? Like, I think for a long time, you're going to see that app required for driving back into Canada. I think it's going to be a routine, just like showing your passport or your Nexus card, going back to Canada, doing the app, doing your, you know, quarantine requirements if, you know, they ask you to. Mm-hmm. Um, so. 
I think it's going to continue for the foreseeable future. I, I really do. I agree with you, Len. Canada, of all the G7 and G20 countries, uh, is the very slowest uh, to release or to step away from some of its uh, onerous traveling requirements with respect to documentation and so on. Most of the other G7 countries and G20 countries are ahead of us in terms of requirement, the, the uh, removal of requirements, Canada being very slow in that regard. So I agree with you. It's going to take a while. Uh, just a moment, if you don't mind, Len, to talk about those license plates that you were talking about a moment ago all around Whatcom County. Must be more than just a few folks in your neighborhood happy as all get out to see us Canadians back in town. Oh, absolutely. Like, especially here in Blaine, the gas stations, you'd drive by and you'd see nobody gassing up. It's not like they had less clients at the gas stations. They had no clients. The mailbox facilities, they're delighted. They're getting rid of packages that they've had for some of them for over two years. And it's nice to see the traffic coming back. Like here we are on a long weekend and the borders are busy. So there's a lot of happy people in this community um, seeing that, you know, so many Canadians are coming back so fast after the dropping of the COVID test requirement on April the 1st. That's just, you know, less than two months ago. Right. And it's back to normal, almost normal, I would say, 90%. All right, back to the phones. Michelle in Port Coquitlam, good morning. Hi, um, just a quick question. Okay. I'm in my mid-50s, and I'm not technologically um, advanced at all. And so uh, you keep mentioning we need to prove our vaccination status. Well, what do I need to upload? And, and we don't have a smartphone, so... What exactly do I need to prove? Is it that picture that I show on my phone that I used to show on my phone? Okay. Len? So what I did when I came back on April the 1st when they dropped the vaccination, or not the vaccination, the the COVID test requirements, what I had was I had the handwritten card, which was issued by the CDC, which I got a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And I also had like an actual electronic um, proof of um, my vaccination. So I just uploaded both and they seem to be acceptable. It's interesting because there's no similar mechanism for coming into the U.S. And that's why I was suspicious on the Americans not really requiring it. There's no like arrive USA app. Right. There's no kind of list of what's acceptable and what is fully vaccinated. So the Canadian government has done a good job with this app, whereas the American government really has nothing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how the American officers would even determine if someone's fully vaccinated from whatever's shown to them on their phone or printed out proof. Who knows? Exactly. Len, I'm afraid I'm out of time. I'm grateful for yours on a Saturday morning and uh, also to all of our callers for uh, their patience and uh, for getting through with some really good questions. Thanks a lot for this. It's great to have you on the show for a change. Thanks, Sterling. Have a great long weekend. Likewise. Len Saunders, immigration lawyer from his office in Blaine, Washington. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.